This episode is brought to you by Square. If you run a restaurant or business, Square has the tools to help you stay connected to customers, shift your business, and navigate this uniquely challenging time. Learn more at square.com slash go slash curd. This episode of Cutting the Curd is brought to you by Comté Cheese Association. Comté, an iconic cheese from the Jura Mountains of France, favored by cheesemongers and cheese lovers all over the world. Find out more at comte-usa.com. That's C-O-M-T-E-USA.com. Hello and welcome to Cutting the Curd. We are here today with Jesse Pukash, a sake distributor and founder of Fit Taste, uh, based out in San Francisco. Uh, Jesse, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Oh man, I am psyched for this. I, I've never had a tasting episode and I am so glad to finally get this off with sake. Um, I think it's um, sort of just being tapped into, especially through you. So I am so happy to share this with the audience today. So thank you for coming on the show. Of course, it's great to be here. And I'm, I'm so honored to be your first tasting episode. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, it, it's, it's pretty cool. So how did you get into the sake biz or how did you start into spirits, if I can even call it spirits at first? <laughs> So sake, technically not a spirit. It's kind yeah. of its own category. Um, and I'll kind of work my way through that uh, through our, our tasting today. But um, I actually got my start working in sake about 16 years ago. Uh, at that time, I had just moved to San Francisco, 23 years old, looking for work bartending. And a friend of mine uh, who was moving out of town and giving up her shifts, she suggested I go by the place where she was working and talk to the person who, who ran the show. Uh, the place is called Ozumo. It's a Japanese restaurant down on the Embarcadero. And at the time, in the early to mid-2000s, Ozuma was sort of a, a mecca for sake. Um, it still is, but, but back then, you know, aside from a couple places in New York, it had probably, uh, had probably had the largest and most diverse sake program in the country. Uh, I walked in there not knowing anything at all about sake or Japanese cuisine. I had never had sake in my life, had only had sushi, you know, maybe twice Somehow talked my way into a job bartending lunch shifts, bar backing at night, kind of learning the ropes a bit. And after about a year, you know, really kind of got into sake working there and had worked my way into some prime shifts behind the bar and eventually took over the beverage program. Uh, and with that curation of their incredibly uh, diverse sake program. So then for about three years, I ran the program at Ozumo, um, oversaw the, the all the sakes on the list and all the sake education for new staff and just kind of fell into being a sake guy. Just kind of woke up one day and said that this is, okay, this is, this is what I'm doing. Uh, and after about four years working there, I had burned out on that side of the industry and took a job with an importer, learning a bit about that side of the business. I uh, did that for about three or four years and then took a job uh, as the sake specialist for a, a large national wholesaler called Southern Wine and Spirits. Uh, some of the listeners may have heard of that place before. Um, running their sake portfolio in Northern California. I did that for about seven years, but you know, honestly, during my time there, I, I never felt fully comfortable working for the man. 
So Mm -hmm. when I left, the dream was always to start my own thing. And then in the middle of last year, I opened Fifth Taste. And uh, my company operates throughout California as a wholesaler distributor dedicated solely to artisanal sake. And I'm also an educator for the Wine and Spirits Education Trust, WSET. And, you know, starting this company was my way of expressing my love for artisanal, family-owned, sometimes a little geeky sake breweries and, you know, connecting their passion for the craft with American consumers. I mean, and and I love that, that you are going for like the different sake, something a little bit, not your usual first round of sake, something a little bit more underground, um, which I'm excited for our tasting uh, later in the program to kind of get to. Uh, my question to you is, when you first started in sake, did the language barrier um, ever stop you? How did you break through that first, like when you were learning about sake, what were like the first things that you felt yourself overcoming? So the, the language barrier is one of the more difficult things that I think really kind of keeps people away from sake a little bit and could be a, a bit intimidating because, you know, you, you pick up a bottle of sake and, you know, there's all these strange words, even if they're written out in English. Um, so that can be a little bit, a little bit confusing. So yeah, when you, when you first kind of get into it, it's a little bit, it's a little bit much, um, I I did, you know, pick up a little bit of Japanese and study a little bit of Japanese throughout my career working with sake. Um, but yeah, it, it, especially at the beginning, it can be a little bit overwhelming when you're starting to explore sake and trying not to be intimidated by a lot of these, you know, Japanese phrases and terms and concepts. Uh, I think the industry is slowly starting to kind of move in a direction that makes sake appeal to people without kind of leaning on those, you know, some of those Japanese words and and terminology, but, but yeah, it can be a little bit difficult for sure. Well, and I think we, in our pre-chat, we sort of discussed how the bottles that you have actually do a great job of, of having some English names and uh, suggesting how to serve the sake. Um, like I had no idea before that some are chilled, some are room temp. Um, I don't know if you want to speak to that a little bit. Yeah. And, and you know, there are no hard and fast rules for sake in terms of you know, temperature and things like that. Obviously there are some guidelines, uh, but, but yeah, I think that bottles when they are imported into the United States, if they have, uh, a screen name, you know, if like the ones that we're tasting, there's one called Forest Spirit. There's one called Sublime Beauty. You know, you'll find things out there called Wandering Poet and things like that, which I think do a great job of helping people connect to it a bit. And then to your point about descriptions and back labels and, you know, suggestions, things like that, I've always found that the really uh, kind of well-developed uh, importers in the U.S., uh, not just the folks that I work with, but other folks, you can really kind of tell who they are based on their labels. You know, if the label has good information about the flavor profile and, the, you know, ideas for pairing and serving temperature, those are people who really care about sake and, and how it's presented. And in terms of Fit Taste, the name of your mm-hmm. company, what, why Fit Taste? Ah, so uh, Fifth Taste is a reference to umami. Uh, which is known as the fifth taste that our tongues perceive along with sweet, sour, salty, and bitter. And a lot of what I enjoy doing is starting a conversation around the unique presence of umami in sake and how that relates to enhancing the enjoyment of our food, uh, which obviously has has brought us here today to to talk about sake and cheese. 
not everything that I work with and not everything that I champion is, you know, super high umami sake. Uh, but a lot of what I, I really gravitate towards personally are, are sakes with a bit more of that uh, umami and complexity because there's just such a, a wide variety of things that you can do with it, pairing with food. So it's sort of synonymous then, and and it, it can be in high end, it can be light to heavy, you're saying. And, and does that mean the body of the sake can also be lighter or heavier? I mean, I'm, just, I'm going a little bit ahead maybe, but. <laughs> no, no, and I think, well, you know, obviously when we taste through these sakes today, you know, it'll kind of demonstrate itself a bit more. But yeah, there, there's a whole kind of wide uh, array of, of different kind of styles of sake, some with a bit, you know, more umami, some with a bit less. Um, Maybe it'd be helpful if I kind of back up a little bit and give like a little bit of a background on sake and kind of how it's made, what goes into it. And maybe that'll help. Yeah, let's 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 the- break it down. Yeah, let's do that. Let's break down like the basic, like how sake is sure. made and, and start with that. Because otherwise yeah. we'll get ahead and everyone will be like, what are we talking about? So let, let's let's go into the basic one-on-one here. All right. So let's let's lay a little groundwork. Um, so sake is an alcoholic beverage made from rice. Uh, it's not a rice wine, as some people call it. It's actually its, its own unique category. There are some parallels to wine, but the production process is actually closer to beer, but still completely unique from from other alcoholic beverages. So uh, rice. So a grain of rice. What is a grain of rice? A grain of rice is made up of proteins, fats, minerals and starch. And sake rice, rice that's grown for for sake is a little bit different than rice that you would eat. Uh, With types of rice that you eat, those elements that I mentioned, the proteins, fats, minerals, and starch, they're all kind of scattered throughout the grain. Uh, For rice that's used to make sake, they typically will use strains where they're able to grow a very well-defined starchy center with the proteins and fats confined to the outer regions of that grain. I I like to visualize a sake rice grain like a hard-boiled egg. So you have that that well-defined yolk in the center, that's the starch, and the egg white on the outside, that's all the other stuff. So what they do is using a rice milling machine, they polish away the outside layers to get closer to that pure starch center. And the general idea is that the more of that outside layer is polished away, the softer, the cleaner, the more elegant the sake will be. Uh, so now that we've milled down that rice, uh, because it's alcohol, it needs yeast. Uh, but we're not quite ready to add yeast because the starch that's left behind is not fermentable the way it is. So expanding just a, a little bit more on starch, a starch molecule is basically a tightly wound chain of glucose molecules or basically sugar. And in order for the yeast to be able to access those sugars to convert them into alcohol and CO2, we need something to break down those complex starches into simple fermentable sugars. So uh, enter our dear friend, koji. Koji is a mold that's used throughout Asian food and beverage production and things like uh, shochu, soy sauce, miso. Uh, In sake, it is sprinkled, this mold spore is sprinkled onto steamed rice before brewing. And what happens is that mold produces enzymes. Those enzymes act like scissors. They penetrate into that grain of rice and cut up those glucose chains and make the within that starch and free them up to get consumed by the yeast. So koji enzymes go in there, break it up. That way the, 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 the yeast can access those sugars and convert them into alcohol. Uh, At the same time, the mold is also producing other enzymes that go to work on the protein bonds in that rice. So the protein bonds, which are basically amino acids, 
they won't ferment, but when they're broken apart, they leave behind amino acids, which can contribute to the, the flavor of the sake. Uh, and those acids, in particular aminos like succinic acid, glutamic acid, those are the building blocks of umami. And sake has, on average, about 10 times the amino acids as wine or beer. And kind of just jumping back for a second, if you know, we were talking about milling, if you only mill the rice a little bit, you'll have more of that protein left in the grain of rice and thus typically more amino acids left behind. So you'll have kind of bigger, richer, fuller, heavier sake. If you mill it more and get closer to that center, so you know, most of what you're leaving behind is starch, uh, you won't have as much of those amino acids and other impurities that are not fermentable in those outside layers. So the sake will be more floral, more elegant, delicate. Uh, and then, you know, obviously, as we kind of taste through these, that'll kind of come back a little bit more because we'll talk about the milling and stuff like that. Uh, so for the koji, they will typically propagate that mold onto about 25% of all of the rice that's used in making the batch of sake, because uh, that's all that they need in order to generate the enzymes to sacrifice all of that starch. And then the process of sacrification. So starches turning into sugar and then fermentation, then turning those sugar into alcohol. All that happens at the same time in the same tank, which is pretty much uh, completely unique to sake. It's called multiple parallel fermentation. Whoa. Okay. So that's wow. So yeah, it's all, I'm that's, just trying that's to absorb a lot all that. No, no, it's good. It's I really know. Good. It's, it's great. It's, <laughs> I love it. It's, it's super sciencey, but it's, uh, it's definitely the great groundwork that we needed to know. Okay. Sorry. Continue. Oh, okay. Well, so I was just going to kind of transition a little bit to, to how that all plays in with, with sake and cheese. Um, there are some, you know, advantages that that kind of gives sake relative to wine. So through that process, the acidity in, in sake is much lower than wine. Uh, so it makes it a lot much rounder on the palate as opposed to kind of sharp and acidic. Uh, so it's a little bit more forgiving when it comes to pairing. Um, it doesn't contain sulfites or tannins. So, you know, if you've ever tried to pair highly tannic wines with certain types of cheese, it just doesn't work. It's just horribly bitter and just not, not workable. Um, sake also, a lot of them has a pretty, um, pretty present appeal of, of lactic acid. So, which can lead to some cool complementary flavors. And then, as I mentioned before, you know, that, that presence of umami in sake is with a bit more of that amino acid. Um, you know, adding umami through beverage pairings is kind of like the way you add umami in kind of within food itself. Like if you're, um, I don't know, if you're making like bolognese and, you know, you have that, that rich fatty meat high in umami with tomatoes that are high in umami, uh, you know, just a delicious meat sauce on its own. But then you take that meat sauce and you shave on some Parmesan. And it absolutely just ignites the flavor of, of that dish of, of the bolognese. So sake Ooh. and cheese together, when it all yes. works in perfect harmony, it, it kind of does the same thing of, of really intensifying the flavors and, and making something really unique. To okay. So I have a follow-up question to that. Is it, okay sure. to is, it, is it okay to cook with sake or is that like a terrible thing to do? It is definitely okay to cook with sake. Uh, I think that a lot of times when you cook with sake, if it's a particularly, you know, elegant, clean, soft sake that, you know, would a lot of times be more expensive, um, you're, it's kind of a waste. So you can basically go and get inexpensive sake, not too sweet, not too floral or fruity, just 
just something that has that, that nice kind of rich sake flavor um, and use it as a substitution for, for cooking with wine. Absolutely. I, I do it all the time. Okay, cool. Because I was like, in yeah. my mind, I was like, wait, sake is too precious to cook with. Maybe this is a terrible idea, but you have just cleared up that myth. So you can cook with sake. Okay, excellent. I Absolutely. Okay. And then how did you discover cheese in your life? Because now you're able to pair sake and cheese, but uh, how did that happen for you? Yeah. So, uh, my, my wife, Liza, who, you know, who works for, I was going to say, I'm playing, I'm playing dumb a little bit here, but I I love Liza. She's incredible. (laughs) So anyway, go on. Yes. (laughs) So, uh, back in 2012, 2013, somewhere around around there, uh, she made a career switch and started working in, in cheese. And she started bringing home all these super cool cheeses. I had all these cool sakes, Our fridge was getting a little bit crowded, so we decided to start doing some pairings, uh, ended up having some friends over for these little sake and cheese parties, and and just really enjoyed the two together. And actually, back then, we started a sake and cheese blog, but I I don't think we've updated it in like six years. Okay. Um, I mean, every year year we uh, we renew the (laughs) the domain and say we're going to revive it, but uh, maybe now's the time. what's Um, What's the name of it, may I ask? Did it have a clever name? Oddly enough, uh, yeah, it's super clever. It's sakeandcheese.com. Oh, beautiful. I'm glad, <laughs> glad I asked. Or okay. actually, I think, I think it works both ways, actually, cheese and sake or sake and cheese. But uh, yeah, long overdue for a bit of an overhaul. Uh, but we've done, we've done sake and cheese classes at a bunch of different cheese shops. Uh, and actually, it, I think it was 2018 at ACS in Pittsburgh. We were on a panel together with a couple of friends of ours that was partly focused on talking about sake and cheese and doing some pairings and you know, the the reception from cheese people through this little sake and cheese journey has been great. Uh, I've really enjoyed making that connection and within the sake community, you know, we're always trying to find ways to broaden the appeal of sake. Uh, So, you know, a lot of prominent influential people in the sake world, you know, people in sales and promotion and some sake brewers have been on the sake and cheese train for a while and have done some really fantastic work enlightening folks to the wonders of cheese and sake. That's very cool. Um, yeah. So I, I wonder then, can a cheese shop in the United States purchase, can they sell sake? Is it, is it fall under beer licensing or is it fall under uh, wine licensing? So sake falls under, so typically in most states, wine and beer is the same license. Uh, it's definitely that way in California. It's that way in New York, uh, Texas, Florida. Um, there may be a couple of styles of sake if there's added alcohol that might change the, the taxation a little bit. Uh, but typically any cheese shop that is licensed to sell wine or beer is absolutely licensed to sell sake. And I definitely think that they should. Okay. Yeah. Because based in New York, just what I know is uh, wine is separate and be- and beer is its own thing. So in a in a supermarket in New York, you can have uh, uh, beer and cheese sold, but you can't have wine always. So it's like a separate. But this is why I asked you because I was like, oh, wait, maybe if I open a cheese shop in New York, I can uh, I can sell sake and cider and stuff like that and beer. So that's, uh, that's why I was curious. Um, and, and and alcohol percentage wise, how what what's the ratio in sake generally? So typically sake that you'll buy will be around 15 or 16%. Uh, 
Uh, sake will actually naturally ferment a lot higher than wine. It'll ferment up to around 18 or 20 percent. Typically, I'd say 90, 95% of the time, they will dilute that sake to bring it down to around 15 to 16%. But in some cases, and we actually have two of them, I think that we're tasting today, that are not diluted. So those are up in that kind of 17 to 18 range. Uh, but typically, a sake will be you know, 15 to 16% alcohol, so a little bit higher than wine. Wow. Okay. Very cool. And in terms of selling them around the United States right now... Um, uh, you're generally selling to uh, well restaurants when they're open after the this time that we're all having, or yeah. is, it, is it is it retail? A lot of retail. Um, is it re- what? What do you sell more to? Restaurants, food service, or is it more uh, retail sided for you? So I sell more to uh, to restaurants uh, for the the types of sakes that I sell. They they kind of just work really well in that format where. You know, you, you may have a, a sake som or someone in there, you know, kind of help guide that guest experience. Uh, there are some some great sake shops and retail places uh, around the country that I can I can talk about at the end if you'd like. Just give yeah. people some suggestions. Uh, but, yeah, I do I do some retail work. But for me personally, it's uh, mostly restaurant, which is actually kind of the opposite of the world that I, I had come from working with Southern. That was mostly uh, retail. So it all kind of depends on. On um, on where you're at in terms of the the portfolio that you have, um, but but yeah, for me personally, it's mostly restaurant. So we're waiting for things to return to normal. Yes, yes, yes. I, I know what you mean. Okay. Well, I am excited to get this tasting on. What I want to do is just take a quick break, um, and then when we come back, we're going to start the tasting. So just listeners, hang on for a quick sec, and we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Square. We all know that this is an incredibly challenging time for our friends running restaurants and small food businesses. With social distancing in place, people are staying home and eating in, and restaurants have had to pivot to pickup and delivery only. HRN would usually be recording our podcast from our studio inside Roberta's, but since they've had to close their dining room, they've ramped up their frozen pizza production, set up a wine and grocery shop, and seen their delivery orders skyrocket. Like Roberta's, many restaurants have been changing offerings day by day as they figure out how to best serve their customers. If you run a restaurant or small business, Square has the tools to help you adapt. One of these tools is the Square online store. It lets you set up a free online ordering page with curbside pickup and local delivery so you can keep customers safe. You can deliver orders yourself or integrate with delivery partners. Its order hub lets you manage all your incoming orders in one place, no matter which delivery partners you choose to use. Square has all the tools to help you stay connected to customers no matter where they are. See everything that's available by visiting square.com slash go slash curd. This episode of Cutting the Curd is brought to you by Conte Cheese Association. Conte Cheese Association represents the Conte PDO, Conte Protected Designation of Origin in the USA. Conte is a raw milk cooked pressed cheese from the Jura Mountains of France. There, every day, 2,500 family farms deliver milk to over 150 local cheesemaking facilities, or fruitiers. This milk must be transformed into Conte within 24 hours of milking to preserve the lactic microflora in the milk ensuring the cheese's aromatic potential. 
About 105 gallons of milk are required to craft a single wheel of Conte. Conte takes time to acquire its flavors in the affinage cellars. After eight months of aging by dedicated affineurs on average, each wheel of Conte is graded and shipped to market. No wheel of Conte is the same. Its flavors speak to the pastures where the cows grazed, the season in which it was made, the particular craftsmanship of the cheesemaker, and the time spent in the aging cellar. Therefore, every wheel of Conte is unique. Learn more about Conte, an iconic cheese from the Jura Mountains of France, favored by cheesemongers and cheese lovers all over the world. Find out more at Conte-USA.com. That's C-O-M-T-E-USA.com. All right, and welcome back to Cutting the Curd. Today I have Jesse Pugash of Fifth Taste, a sake distributor based in San Francisco. And we are just about to jump into this amazing tasting that he has sourced and put together. Uh, Jesse is based, like I said, in on the West Coast, and I am based on the East Coast. So during these times, we source cheese from uh, kind of our coasts. So it was very fun to do the tasting and sort of have the same style of cheese, but then uh, talk back and forth about the little differences and then go over the sake. Um, one of my favorite things that we just did last week. So, Jesse, uh, would you like to discuss our first pairing? Sure. So the first sake that we are going to uh, to enjoy is called Heiwa Kid Junmai Daiginjo. So this sake is from an area in Japan called Wakayama, and it is made by a really exciting, amazing group of young brewers that's part of the reason they call it kid. Uh, jumping back for a second, when we were talking about uh, milling and how much of that rice they're milling away before brewing, um, this is a Junmai Daiginjo, which means that it's that kind of highest classification of milling. So they've milled away at least 50% of that rice grain to qualify as a Daiginjo. So, you know, typically with a Daiginjo, you'll expect to get those, you know, bright, floral, fruity, elegant notes in, in the sake and, and, uh, you know, obviously we'll, we'll lead to some, some fun things with certain cheese pairings. Okay. And in terms of color, I'm seeing it's a crystal clear color. Um, mm-hmm. So that means it has been filtered. Uh, am I saying, is that wrong or right? You can correct me right yeah. now. So there are a couple things with, with the filtration. So when some people say a sake has been filtered or unfiltered, it's a reference to what's called nigori sake. I think some listeners may have had that or heard of it. Uh, nigori is that uh, kind of cloudy, milky appearance of, of sake, and that comes from roughly pressing the sake when it's it's done. You basically separate the, the solids from the clear liquid. Uh, so when they roughly press the sake, you get that kind of textural, cloudy rice leaves in, in the sake. The other thing they'll do, even if they press it fully there'll be like a little bit of haze to it so most sake is then charcoal filtered so sake is like this where it's pretty much crystal clear uh they have not only you know pressed it fully but they've also charcoal filtered it to you know remove any of that residual haze or color so crystal clear pristine beautiful okay and this one i i have it chilled and then in terms of tasting sake as with cheese mm-hmm. what is your recommendation um, what are you drinking out of, by the way? What kind of what kind of glass? 
Uh, that's a great question. So I have one of these um, beer glasses that's like a few mm-hmm. ounces. I hope I didn't I didn't mess that up, but it's one of those tasting beer glasses that's kind of bulbous. Um, I, 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 you tell me. I, I didn't even ask no, you about glassware. <laughs> no, no, that's, that, that's great. That's, you know, a lot of times people ask about glassware. Uh, I am a fan of, of anything that lets the sake express itself. Uh, I'm drinking out of stemless wine glasses or tumblers. Um, wine glasses are perfect nine times out of 10. You know, if you're, if you're drinking a sake without a lot of aroma, you don't really need it. Uh, you can drink out of a smaller cup. Uh, but I'm a huge fan of, you know, utilizing the, the glassware aspect of, of the wine industry for enjoying sake. So, and then, you know, what, what you're using those bulbous, you know, beer tasting glasses. Great. As long as you can focus the aroma and really kind of get the impression of the sake. Perfect. Great. And then from what we, when we first did the tasting, you take a sip first of the sake, then a bite of cheese, and then another sip of sake. Is that, is that the best way to do a cheese and sake tasting? Yeah. I like to kind of make a little cheese sandwich in there with the sake. So go, you know, sake one piece and then bite of cheese and then cleanse it with the sake again. And then, uh, okay, so if I was to be in Japan and I was about to say cheers, what's the word again for saying cheers? Uh, say kampai. Kampai. Okay, all right, I'm going to take a kampai. Okay, I'm going to take a quick sip right now, um, and we'll talk about, and then we'll take the bite of cheese and so forth. Let's, let's see. Mm-hmm. So when you taste it, you should be getting a lot of those bright, fruity notes. I get strawberry and cotton candy, bubble gum really light bodied, super clean. Yeah, I definitely get the cotton candy, strawberry notes. Um, Okay, I'm going to take a bite of, I have from uh, Blue Ledge Creamery uh, in Vermont, a uh, Camembert, which is a bloomy rinded soft ripened cheese. So I'm going to take a bite of that. And um, I believe you have the Green Hill from Sweetgrass. I do have the Sweetgrass Green Hill. So similar in style, if if I'm not mistaken, to what you're you're eating. but yeah, really, really nice and buttery. Yeah, I got, so I'm going to take another sip now. Yeah, this definitely has like the strawberry, like strawberries and cream cake effect going on right now, which mm-hmm. is so cool. I mean, um, as the as the first of four, I think this is, is it's just, it has that sweetness going on that is um, nice and biting. Almost, uh, it doesn't have the fizz of a champagne, but that sort of effervescent uh, feeling to it that um, is a is a perfect first pairing uh, to it. Yeah, and I think as far as you know, the the spectrum of sake goes, this is on the low side when it comes to umami. So you know, pairing that with a cheese that's relatively mild and a cheese that doesn't have tons and tons of umami, it's actually a nice complementary pairing. Um, yeah, I actually like this sake a lot also with uh, blues because you get that sort of, or maybe not this sake specifically, but but uh, uh, sakes with, you know, um, more of that kind of like uh, orchard fruit profile, you know, apples and pear, things like that. I think, you know, pairing that style of aromatic bright sake like this uh, does really well with, with those kinds of cheeses also. Definitely. I can, I can imagine that because the traditional cheese pairings of like pear or sauterne with a blue cheese, this kind of gets in that lane. So I, I completely agree. That's, that's very yeah. cool. Um, yeah. 
Oh, man. Okay. Um, we have to go on to our next pairing. This, it's so hard to leave the first one. I just want to keep drinking more. Um, <laughs> well, we can always come back. So Yeah, it just, that's, that's <laughs> the fun of this. All right, all right. So yeah. um, the next one, would you like to introduce it? it uh, well, I'll let you introduce it. You say the names better than I do. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I've been doing this a little while. Um, so the second one is called uh, Soma no Tengu, or Forest Spirit. Uh, it's from uh, Shiga Prefecture in Japan. And this is a what's called a Maroka Namagenshu. Uh, it is not charcoal filtered. It is not pasteurized and it is not diluted. Um, a bunch of the things that I work with are in that vein of, of you know, non-charcoal filtration, dilution or pasteurization. It's essentially after the sake is fermented, they press it and it is bottled and enjoyed naturally the way it is. So, you know, they, they won't undergo those other steps to kind of smooth out the edges and sort of tame the sake. So it's very wild, very expressive, really assertive, lots of acid, lots of umami. Uh, and then one thing you'll probably notice with this, it's got a little bit of a, a haze to it. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I love, I love so, you. You look through the light, you, it just glows. It, it's amazing. Yeah. So it's, it's what's called an Usu Nagori. So I, I mentioned briefly about Nagori before that quote unquote unfiltered, you know, actually more of a roughly pressed sake. Um, typically there'll be a lot more opaque than this. Um, Usu Nagori just means it's a very thin Nagori. So you get that little slight haze to it um, from a very, very rough pressing. So that's the style, Usu Nagori. Okay. Yep. Excellent. All right. So I am going to take a sip uh, in a moment and I am pairing this with a fresh chev, also from a Blue Ledge, Blue Ledge Creamery, excuse me, from Vermont. Um, and on your side, you have, I believe, Laura Chanel fresh chev? I have Laura Chanel fresh chev, and this was actually the first creamery that Liza worked for. So this is kind of a bit nostalgic for me from days when we would have tons and tons of this delicious Laura Chanel chev in the house. Oh, um, man. I'm jealous really, of your fridge. <laughs> we actually had to buy a, we, we, at a certain point we had to buy a whole separate full size fridge cause we were just getting completely taken over by <laughs> sake and cheese. Oh my God. The life, the lifestyle. I love it. Okay. All right. Tough work, man. Kapow. All right. I'm going to take a sip. Totally different fruit elements going on right now. Um, it's, it's not as sweet, so it's more umami. Um, I'm going to take a bite of the cheese now. Yeah. The sake on its own kind of has this like candied mushroom quality to it. You know, it's got that really cool fungal umaminess, but a bit sweet, a bit slightly creamy, but super cool and nutty and toasty and just a delicious brew. Yeah. I mean, I'm just getting like the most beautiful toasted bread notes right now because mm. you have that like sort of yeastiness from the goat cheese and then it just sort of rounds out beautifully with the forest spirit um oh my god i just i just feel like i need to be outside now and like and enjoying life <laughs> with this you know yeah i think for chev when you know i've done a couple different pairings with this i think sake is like the first one we we did the heiwa kid I actually really like those bright fruity sakes with, you know, really clean, fresh chev. Uh, but then getting into slightly more textural sakes, creamier sakes like this Usu Nagori or even a Nagori Nagori, I think that those texturally do really well with uh, the texture of a chev. 
Yeah, it, it just elevates yeah, it. It, yeah. it brings those those features of the goat cheese, which is normally just a straightforward fresh goat cheese, and gives it um, another level to it. Which I think, to me, for pairings, means we we did very we did very well when you have something that's enhanced um, on both sides. Actually, it's that's uh, it's very good. Um, yeah, I mean, having that that umami backbone in the sake and those those really, you know, hugely apparent aminos in there really enhances that flavor of the cheese. That's, that's great. And I just, uh, uh, to the listeners, dear listeners, um, the, the top of this bottle is so interesting. It's like a little, it's like a cork. It's not a screw top. It has like a very ingenious way of preserving itself. Um, and, and correct me, Jesse, you said bottles can be kept for up to two to three weeks after you open them. Is that what we talked about there, there, before? There actually is is no time limit. Uh, oh. I think what, what you'll notice with sake is like the first one, uh, the, the kid, the Jumai Daiginjo. If you have a, a Jumai Ginjo, Jumai Daiginjo, something that's you know aromatic and fruity and floral, you'll see those, those components of it start to fade a bit after about two weeks. Um, the sake won't get bad, but those really lovely fruit notes will, will start to fade out a little bit. Sakes that have a bit more depth and acidity and umami, those a lot of times even get better uh, with age, even when they're open. Um, I, have, I have bottles in my fridge that have been open for six months and they taste amazing. Um, there's kind of like a, a life cycle to open bottles of sake. Sometimes it, you know, is not great and those those notes will fade a little bit. But um, you know, long story short, just because you've had a bottle that's been open for a month. Um, I would say one, drink your sake faster, please. Um, but also, uh, it, it is, it didn't go bad. It doesn't, it doesn't turn into vinegar the way that wine would. It doesn't, you know, really deteriorate the way that beer does. Um, yeah, I would say, you know, if you, if it's something that, that you really like, um, save yourself a little bit, hide it from yourself in the back of the fridge and mm-hmm. come back to it in a month and see what you think. I mean, I, I doubt I'll need that much time, like you said, but <laughs> I, uh, I just for anyone who maybe is uh, taking a glass a night or something, you know, they might want to just have that time zone. So, um, okay, very cool. Thank you. I okay. I say yeah. we go third third set, uh, third uh, third bottle here. Um, All right. So we have uh, it's in English. It's Sublime Beauty, but I'm going to throw it to you now for the full name. All right. So. Uh, it's called Tainohana, or Sublime Beauty, from a brewer called Moriki Shuzo uh, in Mie Prefecture, which is uh, kind of close to Wakayama, um, which was the first uh, brewery that we tasted, uh, right kind of in the middle part of Japan. Um, an incredibly famous, amazingly cool brewery. Uh, the brewer, Rumiko Moriki, is a bit of a legend in the sake world. She's actually the, the first ever a female master brewer and brewery president in the sake industry. Um, sake brewing is very much still a, a man's game. I, I think that yeah, I'm going to guess and say less than 5% of all sake brewers are women. Uh, but and but Rumiko being the first uh, female master brewer kind of was a bit of a trailblazer. Uh, there are a handful of female master brewers now, uh, but she was just She's an absolutely legendary character in in the sake world. Uh, she's known now because she grows a lot of um, her own organic rice. Uh, she mostly uses ambient yeast, um, so a very funky, 
interesting style of sake making. Um, this sake in particular, the Sublime Beauty, is a, a free run sake. Uh, it's called Arabashiri, which is basically before they press, they take the mash, put it into these mesh canvas bags, and they lay it down uh, for pressing. But before they actually apply any pressure to those bags, the sake that can kind of run out on its own, that's free run sake. Um, so really kind of you know, youthful and brash and exciting. Um, also, Morocco Namagenshu, like the sake that we just tasted. So high alcohol, high acid, um, a bit more umami. And then lastly, uh, and then we can get to tasting in a second, the, the thing I really like about the sake is uh, the milling rate is at 90%, which means they've only removed the outer 10% of that uh, rice grain. So there's so much left in that rice grain before they start brewing. So you get, you know, a lot more rice forward characteristics, a lot more umami, a lot more savoriness and depth and complexity. And this is personally, I would say this is my number one uh, cheese sake of, of everything that I work with. And oh, wow, I forgot that this is okay. Your favorite. Excellent to know. And you have met this brewer before? You've you've met her in real life? I, from Yeah, I, I've actually been fortunate to meet, uh, I think, pretty much all of my the, the, the brewers that I, I am fortunate to sell their sake. Um, I was actually with her in February. I was in Japan, uh, and I was visiting with her, you know, before the, the world got turned upside down. Mm-hmm. And uh, she's a big fan of pairing her sake with cheese. And actually when I was with her, we were tasting through her sakes and she served me, um, a flatbread made out of, um, sake kasu, which is basically the, the leftover sake leaves that get pressed into like a, almost like a cake from the pressing process. So she used that as like a flatbread, melted some cheddar on top of that, and then added anchovies. So it's like umami on top of umami (laughs) on top of umami. And then we did this and it was like, you know, fireworks in your brain. It was just That sounds like heaven because I'm addicted to umami savory. As a cheese lover, for me, that's, oh my God, I want to meet this woman. I'm going to go to Japan and I'm going to meet her. We had been talking a little bit about trying to get her over here for for some events or something. Um, You know, then obviously everything got got all crazy. Um, But she's incredible. She's hysterical, uh, an inspiration. Uh, I love her. Her sakes are incredible. Yeah, yeah. That, that's so cool. Super and fun. this is and this is uh, Nama, so it means unpasteurized, as you mentioned. Unpasteurized. So yes. I realize we're kind of throwing a lot of terms at the listeners, but um, Nama. Anytime you see that on a label, that means it's not been pasteurized. So on the positive side, you get you know a lot more expressiveness and brightness. Um, the only downside is that a lot of times it can, um, spoil a little bit because those enzymes are still active. So when you do talk about, you know, going back to your question about how long to keep a bottle open, you have to be a little bit careful with unpasteurized sake because those can turn pretty sour and get a little bit spoiled. Um, this one in particular, because it is not diluted, um, and not charcoal filtered, the acids are high enough that this one is, is a bit different than most unpasteurized sake. It can stand up for months. Okay. All right. Yeah. So let's, let's do this. Let's take a sip. And even I, 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 the bouquet is a little stronger. Um, sort of like the, I think maybe rice notes, I want to say that I'm starting to smell or like a sugar slight note, caramelized note to it. Um, 
And then I'm going to take a bite of the cheese. The cheese that I have is from uh, Blue Ledge again, and it's a goat's milk cheese with a bloomy rind. Um, its name is Crotina. Um, and on your side, I'll introduce it. It's the uh, Serve et Belle um, Boucheron. So let's let's go awesome. for it. So right away, the the playfulness between is um, it's a very like almost sort of very salty goat cheese, aged goat cheese, um, and then. Because the sake has sort of a minerality that can like bounce together with it, you almost mm -hmm. feel like you're like in the cellar, sort of getting the like the age goat cheese out of the cellar is where my mind starts to go because you're just getting this kind of slightly tart sweetness and then the minerality is what so it's just like this whole playful vision in my head of of goat cheese being made <laughs> and, and drinking sake. Yeah, it has this really cool rustic feel to it. And, you know, one of the things I like about doing with this cheese in particular is you get that little textural difference, you know, between the middle part of the cheese and then getting closer to the cream line. It changes the component a little bit and how it plays with the sake. So there's some kind of, you know, different ways you can you can play with this pairing, too. Yeah, this and, is and the sake is delicious. Yeah, <laughs> I was just going to say, and it, it's delicious. Um, uh, I wonder, oh, I have a question for you, an etiquette question. Sure. If I wanted to add an ice cube to the sake, is that a terrible thing to do? It is. Uh, it, it's not a terrible. Here's okay. It's not a terrible <laughs> thing to do if you yeah. like it. Whatever you want to do to your sake that makes helps you enjoy it, do it. Uh, I would say that if you were to add an ice cube to the first sake that we tasted, that would get way too watery, way too you know thin and light. Um, because it's, you know, generally a light sake. This sake is built like a tank. Uh, like I said, you know, 90% milling rate. So it's, you know, lots of rice, lots of structure and body and alcohol. This is something where if you want to kind of rein it in a little bit, um, sure. You could, you could add an ice cube. Uh, I would say that most brewers in Japan would probably thumb their nose at that a bit because they want their sake enjoyed exactly how it is it is brewed totally um, fair totally but, fair yeah fair but but also you know it's also fair to, to drink things that you enjoy and if you know it's a little too dense and a little bit too you know intense um sure you know cool it down a little bit you thin it out a little bit yeah yeah, no, or you just throw it back in the fridge again. <laughs> there you go. Um, very, very cool. No, I, I love this sake. It's it's excellent. Um, all right, we have to move on to our fourth pairing, the very last pairing okay. of our session. Um, all right. Yes, so, okay. You so can the last, say it. Oh, yes. Yeah, all go right. for it. So the, <laughs> so the last sake <laughs> that we're going to do is from a brewer uh, called Manzai Raku in Ishikawa. So we're now on the uh, west coast of Japan, on the, the Sea of Japan side, kind of in the middle. Um, you know, the, Japan's kind of shaped like a banana. So this is kind of like right on the inside of the curve of the, uh, of the banana. Um, it's actually from an area uh, called Hakusan within Ishikawa. And actually, if you look at the bottle that you have in the bottom right, uh, there should be a little GI stamp on it. Oh, yeah. So a GI Hakusan. This is actually the first area in Japan to get a, a geographic indication 
for sake making. Um, so yeah, really cool brewery, um, grows all of their own local rice. Um, it is a Yamahai Junmai. Uh, we didn't talk about Yamahai before, um, but I'll just kind of touch on that a little bit. Um, Yamahai and a, a cousin of Yamahai called Himoto, which applies to the sake we just tasted. Uh, those are, are more of a kind of an old school way of making the yeast starter. So basically, you know, after they've made their koji, you know, milled the rice, made the koji, done all that, uh, they need to make a yeast starter. So they take a little bit of koji, a little bit of steamed rice, a little bit of water, and then all the yeast. And the idea is to propagate enough yeast cells to sustain fermentation for the duration of the process. But at the very beginning, the yeast hasn't started fermentation, so there's no CO2. So they need to basically preserve that yeast starter from harmful bacteria. And the way that brewers do that is by adding pure lactic acid um, at the beginning. But before they had that technology of adding lactic acid, they had to develop that, those natural lactic bacteria naturally. And there are two old school methods of doing that, which are sort of similar to each other. They're, I like to call them cousins. I won't get into the differences between the two, but basically these, these two old school methods, um, which are more time consuming, more laborious, um, but they naturally develop lactic bacteria to protect the yeast starter. Um, one of them is called Kimoto and the other is called Yamahai. Uh, nowadays, I would say the vast majority of yeast starters are made in the modern method where they're adding lactic acid uh, because it cuts the time in half. It's a little bit more stable, but some uh, brewers that really want that cool, rustic, old school style, they will still use those Kimoto and Yamahai methods to make their yeast starter. And and we began the conversation about this bottle uh, hinting at, I guess, terroir, which I did not ask you about before. Um, in terms of Japan and making these sakes, does it matter what part of the country it's being made in? Is there a, a temperature or climate difference with the rice? Uh, I'm not even sure where to begin on this. I was actually coming into this hoping you would not ask me about uh, okay. regionality and terroir. No, okay, no, then never mind. It, Forget it. No, 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 no. <laughs> it, it, it opens a whole uh, Pandora's box of, of discussion um, about it. It's, it's a question I get all the time. What I'll say is, uh, yes, it does. Um, and also, no, it doesn't. Um, there are a whole bunch of things that contribute to terroir and regionality um, in sake, um, the, the water that they're using, the local you know water sources and the minerality in the water will have a lot to do with it. Um, the type of food that they eat uh, historically will have a lot to do with it. Um, the rice to a certain degree. Um, but I would say that the, the regionality in sake and terroir in sake is something that is widely discussed and seldom agreed upon within the world of sake. That's what I'll say. So maybe it's more about the brewer and the craftsperson than anything that, else. That is that is one hundred percent what I what I will sort of stick to. I think that um, I've had someone say to me with wine, uh, you know, eighty percent of the character of the wine is due to the fruit and the terroir, and twenty percent is due to the skill of the the winemaker. Sake is the exact opposite. So you know, maybe twenty percent of that character of that that sake is due to you know, the rice and the raw materials, 80% is, is focused on, um, you know, who's actually doing the making. I actually had, you know, one of my first sake teachers, um, would just sort of drill into my head, you know, stop worrying about where, you know, where this is from and start worrying about who's actually making it. Cause that's really what's important. 
That's really cool. I, I love it because yeah. it so much of the personality then of each brewer is based in these bottles, and um, I think that's super cool. Okay. Yeah. Um, let's go for the fourth pairing. Here we go. I'm going to take a sip. Get like a clean, heavy umami flavor going on. Yeah, a lot of kind of like brown butter, brown sugar, uh, a little bit of mushroom. So typically when you come across those Yamahais or Kimotos, they will have a bit more of that that umami to them for sure. Cool. And I am going to taste it with, uh, it's uh, again from Blue Ledge Creamery, and this is uh, the Middlebury Blue. So it's a cow's milk blue. And uh, on your side, you have Sweetgrass Dairy's Asher Blue, also cow's milk. Indeed. Lovely Asher Blue. So this is more of a drier blue, kind of funky, earthy, not creamy at all. And I'm gonna, and it has like a buttery popcorn note at the end. Yeah. And I'm going to take another sip of sake with that. Oh, man. Again, under heaviness. Like, uh, that's not even a word. I just made up a word because uh, this is so... We can make heaviness a word. Let's do it. Heav- heaviness is a word now? <laughs> it is. It's, it's we good. just decided. It's, it's, a good, it's a good session. It's a good happy hour session here <laughs> on Cutting the Curd. Um, man, um, the tartness of the blue, like that kind of moldy, um, kind of bready uh, notes that you get that then go with this sake... Um, I just, I love, again, the balance that they're both sort of on the heavy side, but they can, mm-hmm. they don't overpower each other. They really, um, kind of still dance well together. Um, yeah. And I get this like really nice, like toasted butterscotch thing going on, on my end. It's just, it's so nice and unique. And that's not something that I was pulling out of the cheese on its own, but to me, you know, once you kind of add that sake and, you know, those, those flavors interacted and you really kind of brought up another third flavor that I had not, that I had not yet found in the cheese. It, it's That's very great. cool. I mean, I think normally, uh, in our pre-discussions, this was aligned to more natural rind cave age cheeses, but then because that mm-hmm. moldy nature of the cheese is, it goes so well with this type of sake that the blue cheese actually really kicks into gear very, very well with this. Um, so Bravo <laughs> on, on this pairing. This is great. Um, it, and, and I, I actually, almost, oh, sorry, good. yeah, no, no, I was just going to say it, it has like that burnt wood flavor. Um, I, I have that in my notes uh, from before and I'm just starting, it lingers into that, which it's kind of, you get the, like a, yeah, like a forest wood fire type feeling. Uh, but anyway, so what were you going to say, Jesse? I'm sorry. Well, no, no. So what I was going to say is that I, I think for, you know, obviously we don't have any washed rind cheeses with us uh, for this pairing, but getting into these you know slightly funkier earthier styles really opens up some amazing pairings you know getting into wash rind and more funky styles of cheese um just because yeah again i mean having that that really interesting depth and and complexity in the sake can really add a lot to uh these funkier cheeses oh yeah i could i could see a wash rind going along with this i we totally like didn't have that style in here on this group but oh yeah that could be fabulous um yeah and and it doesn't have like sometimes I think there can be like a metallic clash with some red wines. So this actually, yep. because sake is so good at being delicate and subtle, but still 
amazingly delicious. Um, it has so many nuances that, um, that I've never enjoyed before, um, which is very special, I think, to sake. Um, and I'm glad you're like speaking this, speaking about this to everyone <laughs> so that they, they can learn more because I've never, I never knew anything about sake before. And this is just so cool to, to sort of hear all the differences between like, I'll look at a sake menu now and, and definitely look to, for the words in the title and 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 understand like okay this is going to be like this or that um which is i think we have to keep encouraging that, <laughs> that, that. yeah of course and like i would encourage people just to be a bit more adventurous and experimental with sake you know obviously we don't have time to do it on air but you know if we were to go back through and taste all of these sakes with all of these cheeses you'll find that so many of them you know, create interesting pairings and sake is so forgiving and, and amenable to food across the board that, you know, it's really just such a nice thing to, to incorporate into your, your daily drinking life and, and your, your pairing uh, activity. So it's, yeah, I'm really glad we're able to do it like this. So if, um, somebody is just starting to learn about sake, I wanted to ask you, what is the best book or website or Instagram to go check out to learn more about sake? So in terms of a website, uh, there are a handful of, of good websites uh, and good sources of information online. I would say if I were to direct people to kind of one hub, uh, there is a website called Sake World. I think, I think it's sake-world.com. It's run by a guy named John Gauntner, who is sort of the most well-known sake evangelist in um in the world he uh, english speaking sake evangelist in the world uh, he is based both between uh the us and japan uh so his website is a great resource and then also he has a couple books that i think you can access through the website that's a great place to start um but you know really the the best exploration from sake comes from from drinking just going out yeah. and, um you know buying sake and and trying it with cheese and which leads me to my next favorite question is where do we buy these <laughs> sakes? Um, okay. So these sakes in particular, um, a bit scattered and these are all, you know, um, you know, small production sakes. So it's not like you can just go to whole foods or, you know, Safeway and pick them up. Um, but what I actually think that the best thing to do is just kind of, you know, generally direct people where, where to get sake. And I think, uh, most of these sakes will be available in these places. Um, for me, uh, we're super lucky in the Bay Area. We have possibly the best sake store on the planet called True Sake. Uh, then in Oakland, there's an incredible sake um, Japanese spirit kitchenware barware shop called Umami Mart. They're incredible and they have some incredible sake. In New York, you guys have an unbelievable sake scene. Uh, there's a place called Sakaya in the East Village. That's great. Uh, uh, Kodaichi and Dukes, uh, those have great sake selections there in Brooklyn for folks not in any of those places if looking for you know e-commerce I would say the best e-commerce sake uh, hub would be a place called tipsy sake t-i-p-p-s-y they have a really interesting thing going on uh, but the other thing I want to say is that it, kind of to recommend to people to drink local sake uh, the domestic craft sake movement has really reached a whole nother level in the last few years with um, amazing sake is being made by Den and Sequoia, both in the Bay area. Uh, let's see what else, uh, Brooklyn Cura in your neck of the woods is absolutely amazing. Wonderful people making great sake. Um, 
I, I feel bad I'm leaving out so many great sake makers. No, no, but, no. Uh, this is, this well, is news to me. So you're saying, I just want to make sure I'm clear about this. Yeah. Yes. So people are making sake in the United States? Is that what you're saying? Yes. Wow. Okay. Uh, I had no so idea. I would say going back 30 years, people started making sake in the U.S., actually 40 years now, um, more uh, kind of like large scale, um, inexpensive supermarket brands. Like if you were to go into, um, you know, Kroger, I don't know what supermarkets you have where you are, but, um, you know, the mainstream supermarkets, the sakes that you'll find for, you know, $7.99, $8.99, those are typically made in very, very large scale breweries in California. Um, you know, the Gekakan, Shochigobai, who all make really good sake, uh, but obviously large scale um, production. People started making craft sake in the U.S. probably about 20 years ago. And some of it good, some of it not so great. But, you know, really in the last five years or so, uh, the domestic sake world has kind of reached a whole nother level with with the craft scene. So like I said, Den is incredible. Sequoia, Brooklyn Cora. Um, I think actually there's sake breweries in about 20 states right now. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, yeah. And I personally, I don't distribute any domestic sake. I strictly do imports. That's not to say I wouldn't ever do domestic sake, um, but I don't distribute any of these. Um, but honestly, for consumers, I think forming that connection with locally produced food and beverage can really help form a deeper bond with the craft. So please support your local sake maker. Uh, I'm sure you can just Google, you know, local sake brewery or whatever and, and find something where you are. But uh, yeah, there are, I think, I think about 20 states have wow. breweries now. It's incredible. Oh, I had, I had no idea. Oh, okay. Okay. So like, Who knew? well, Who knew? thank you for sharing all of your sake wisdom with us. Um, on this episode, I feel like you just gave everyone the gateway pass to um, the sake world, and we're all going to just go out and buy more sake right now. Um, Please which do. Is, which is super cool. I, I mean, I'm so excited uh, once I can get out of my apartment to uh, <laughs> to just go over into a sake store and, and, and browse those shelves now. I'm like, oh, man, I have like a whole new world to check out. This is, this is effing great. This is so cool. Um, awesome. That's so nice to hear. Yeah, no, this was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, you know, we're, we're definitely going to give you a shout out on all our social medias at Cutting the Curd. For you, it's at Fifth Taste. So people, please follow at Fifth Taste. Um, and I just want to say thank you for coming on the show, Jesse. This was great. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. All right, guys. Uh, we'll be back next week, but uh, I hope everyone stays safe and uh is good out there and, uh, you know, supporting what they can in these times. Um, this week, HRN will be donating 10% of its membership drive and uh, the proceeds to the Philando Castile Relief Foundation. Uh, this is to support families who've lost loved ones to police brutality um, and help uh, enact police reform. Uh, this is based out of St. Paul, Minnesota. So, um, again, if you want to help donate and, uh, you know, give a little change to the world, uh, heritageradionetwork.org uh, slash donate, that would be great. Uh, and, you know, again, HRN will be donating 10% of the membership drive to the Philando, Philando Castile Relief Foundation. Um, I hope everyone has a great week and, you know, stay strong, be safe. Cutting the Curd is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. 
Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.